0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
1: Hey, Mega, How's it going?
2: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm great. Um, Is it okay if we speak a little bit about you getting kicked out of Beijing?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure.
1: Okay, cool. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast. Today on the show, we have one of my former colleagues, Megha Rajagopalan, who's an international correspondent at BuzzFeed News. And I'm really excited to bring Mega on today because she has done the leading reporting on what's happening in Xinjiang region in China, where um, millions or, or about around a million people, um, according to reports, have been detained in some way uh, for questionable, for crimes, we don't even know exactly what's happening. Um, they've been largely Muslim, and there's a, a program going on inside China um, to essentially forcibly assimilate these folks. And it's a story that I don't think is getting enough attention, but Mega has been on the front lines of it. And we're going to hear a little bit about her reporting, her experience in China, and, um, and how she used tech to help find out what was going on in the region. So... I couldn't be more excited to welcome Mega to the show. Mega, great to have you on.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Great. So you recently published a story with a couple of other reporters finding that in Xinjiang, which is a region in China, um, there had been a number of detention centers that hadn't been reported, but using uh, a trick looking at some of the blacked out areas uh, in Baidu maps you had found uh dozens of these detention centers. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the reporting process. But first, I'd love to hear just from your perspective, uh, what is Xinjiang and what's happening there? Like, take us, give us like the, the 10,000 foot view before we dive into it.
2: Okay. So Xinjiang is a really large region in Western China that sits on the border of a number of Central Asian countries. Uh, you have a population there of, um, some like 25 million people. Um, about half of those are made up of Uyghur Muslims and other predominantly Muslim ethnic minorities. And the other half are Han Chinese. Um, so they belong to the dominant ethnic group in China. Um, and Xinjiang has um, has been sort of a, a less developed part of China for some time. Uh, the government has kind of had its issues with the minority populations there for a long time um, since the Communist Party came to power in 1949. Um, but what I've primarily written about is um, the government's policies in Xinjiang kind of in the Xi Jinping era. And um, it's during that time period that things got significantly worse. Um... Starting in sort of late 2016, early 2017, the government started to implement this policy of, um, first of all, high tech and very pervasive surveillance over Muslim minority populations. And on the other hand, um, mass internment and incarceration um, of a portion of that population. Uh, So So they're they're detaining.
1: Sorry, they're detaining.
2: Detaining and incarcerating.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. so according to um, UN officials and um, some academic estimates, um, there are upwards of a million people who have been detained in that region since 2017. But I just wanted to add this. Mm-hmm. The, the numbers involve a lot of extrapolation and they're sort of hard to get to. But that's sort of the, the ballpark figure that um, everyone takes seriously.
1: And what does China say there? I mean, if they're going to incarcerate folks like this, like what do they say their crime
2: is? Um, So I think it's important to distinguish between people who are in extrajudicial camp facilities versus people who are in the normal prison population. Um, In some senses, it's a distinction without a difference because the camps are not... The government calls the camps vocational training centers or schools. They are not that. They are internment camps. Um, But... uh, the thing that you do to get to camps versus the the kinds of things that you do to get to prisons are different. So for camps, people are being sent there for transgressions that are not even crimes um, under Chinese law. Um, so I've met people who were told that they were sent for having banned apps like WhatsApp on their phones. Um, you know, people who were sent for sending money to family overseas uh, for traveling and living abroad, particularly we, within uh, the Muslim majority world. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things like that that can get you sent to camps. Um, Human Rights Watch has documented the existence of a system called the IJOP, which is the um, Integrated Joint Operations Platform, which has a much shorter Chinese name, Um it's essentially a, a kind of big data program where um, the government takes data from different aspects of people's lives, uh, ranges from really mundane stuff like your electricity consumption and your kind of local travel patterns, all the way to stuff like religious practices, like ideology and um, stuff like that. And um, Human Rights Watch has found examples where um, the system has been used to, to sort of um, help the government decide who gets sent to internment camps and who doesn't. So on top of that, then you have the actual prison system. Um, Wait, wait, before we
1: get to that, I'm just curious. So obviously China isn't really worried about the people downloading WhatsApp. So what's going on from a higher level? Are they just interested in making sure there are no Muslims in China? Like, What is their broader strategic goal of this, um, I don't know, system of oppression.
2: Well, I think they are concerned about people downloading WhatsApp, like for sure. Like mm-hmm. you have to, you have to factor in that China has uh, probably the most sophisticated internet censorship system in the world and surveillance system as well. Um, so, of course, it's quite important to them to first of all control the ways ways in which people communicate and also to monitor those communications. So that's why they they try to drive people outside of um, systems that they cannot monitor. Uh, WhatsApp, of course, is end-to-end encrypted and um, it. It's also belongs to Facebook, which is a U.S. company. Um, so, it, you know, it's Chinese government's really limited in the ways that they can monitor it. Um, so, you know, that's why they like it's a lot easier for people in China to use homegrown uh, messaging systems like right. WeChat. And that's what's what, used in Xinjiang. Yeah. Um, but what I'm
1: getting at is like, why yeah. why is it that there why is it that it seems like Muslims in, in this region are the ones that are taking the brunt of this?
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I get what you're saying. So like um, essentially um, from the government's own statements um, at the heart of this is a desire to sort of forcibly assimilate this group of people into okay. Han Chinese culture. Right. And that necessarily involves the eradication of their own cultures. Um, so the Chinese government's perspective is that um, Uyghurs in particular Who are the biggest, by far, uh, Muslim ethnic minority group in Xinjiang have have you know have separatist groups that are that are responsible for uh, terrorism, uh, are responsible for riots that broke up in or broke out in the city of Urumqi in two thousand nine, that they're sort of causing unrest because of an ideology that they perceive to be toxic. So it's important to note that um, there. have been terrorist incidents in Xinjiang, although, um, according to the government, there haven't been any in the past few years. Um, And they have punished all of the people that they have found to be responsible in those incidents. But what this particular campaign is essentially, you could see it as a form of collective punishment uh, for an entire ethnic group for the crimes of, you know, a a handful of people who have sort of Mm -hmm. already been punished. But that's sort of their perspective.
1: And so um, this has been going on since around 2016?
2: Yeah, like late t- 2016, early 2017.
1: And we don't, we don't, we have gotten a bits and pieces of reports on this. Obviously, China doesn't have a free press in the same way that we do in the US. Um, there have been a few journalists that have made it inside. Uh, I remember watching a Vice News special about a reporter who got in there. Um, but you actually took a pretty different approach, which is analyzed satellite imagery that looked at um, what was happening on the ground and on and on with uncensored maps and comparing that to blacked out areas on Baidu maps and then what did you find
2: so okay just to back up um I don't want to make it seem as if Xinjiang is a really difficult place to access that's just not true there are lots of journalists that have been to Xinjiang including myself um for actually for a story for BuzzFeed in um 2017 most recently um you know, you can get on a plane and fly there. It's not like it's North Korea. The The issues there are a little bit more uh, subtle than that. Um, when you go there, a lot of times you're monitored by police. You can't move about freely. And it's also, there are so many camps that it's just like logistically not feasible to go to, um, you know, all of them or even a significant number of them, especially with the level of surveillance that exists there. Um, so I guess to...
1: And to- you, you also ended up getting kicked out of Beijing, but we'll... we'll- We'll yeah. get to that in the second segment. But sorry, yeah, go sure. ahead. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So just about this particular project. So I worked with um Allison Killing, who is a licensed architect and also a human rights investigator, and um Christo Bushek, who is a um a developer. Um, and essentially we started talking back all the way back in I think twenty eighteen, and um it w- like Alison and I met in a very strange fashion. We were working on this like citizen journalism, um handbook to help people become better investigators. And um, while we were working on this together at this kind of retreat, um, I started kind of talking her ear off about some of these issues in Xinjiang. And she got really interested. And then she started playing around with um, with Baidu maps. And we were trying to com- kind of come up with a methodology for this. And um, she started to quickly notice that when she looked at places where we already knew that camps existed based on like kind of previous data that had already come out. Um, like when you kind of zoomed in there, these funny gray squares would appear. And uh, when you zoom further and they would, they would disappear. Um, but like um, she'd be like, we were like, well, what are these gray squares? And then, um, you know, it's possible that it was because the imagery wasn't loading or something like that. But we didn't think that was the case because that's actually like a different kind of, uh, like gray tile or like blanked out tile that appears when like the image just hasn't loaded. So we thought this might be a kind of censorship. So essentially that was like the first data point we wanted, um, like Xinjiang is a huge region. Um, like satellite maps are made up of like squares that, that are called tiles and Xinjiang has millions of them. So there's mm-hmm. no way we could have sifted through all of them. So um, we use this kind of this, this, kind of trail of clues from baidu to sort of narrow down the areas that um we would have to search and um that helped us we didn't use the the fact that it was ban- blanked out in baidu as sort of evidence of it being a camp there were lots of areas of baidu that are blanked out that are not camps that are things like military facilities or other sensitive areas that the government doesn't want on like a public um satellite uh satellite map right you um, but
1: cross-reference those
2: exactly with-
1: the satellite imagery so you want to tell us a little bit more about that
2: yeah so um essentially what we ended up doing was um we yeah we, we cross-referenced that with um mostly with tiles from google earth um um allison also had this idea to look near um Near cities and near towns, like basically where people had settled, rather than these huge open deserts and and grasslands that you have in other parts of Xinjiang and, and mountain ranges. Um, so we we that really narrowed the search because we, then we could focus on populated areas. Um, and what we ended up finding is that um, not only was the government accelerating its construction of you know these really scary facilities that have all the hallmarks of internment camps. Um, they like, they were building them really big. Like we found several structures that, um, these are like compounds that, um, can house more than 10,000 people. And we found at least one that can house more than 30,000. And, right, uh, The
1: comparison yeah. was like central park, uh, yeah, something the size of central right. park, yeah, which is enormous when you're talking about an internment facility.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what happens in these internment facilities?
2: Um, so I interviewed a lot of ex detainees. I've spoken to quite a few over the years and, um, you know, their stories have a lot in common. Um, so when people are inside, essentially they're subject to, um, like all kinds of, um, kind of really degrading treatment, um, you know, the purpose, These the kind of a sensible purpose of these facilities is education in some sense. That's what the government says. And there's there's a kind of kernel of truth to that because people are taught Chinese language and then they're they're taught like Communist Party dogma. But in practice, what that looks like is like people go into these classrooms where there's a kind of opaque, like I think probably fiberglass, uh, sorry, transparent um, wall between the teachers and the students there will be guards in the classrooms um the students like some people uh like the i shouldn't call them students i'm sorry um the like the the detainees like um some people describe being hit with batons if they got a word wrong in chinese um describe being humiliated um and in in terms of their treatment um, even beyond that, people described really, really dreadful um, overcrowding, particularly in the first generation of camps, which were largely repurposed uh, government buildings, like old folks' homes and high schools and stuff like that. Uh, women talked about having their hair cut forcibly to chin length. Um, lots of people talked about being taken to solitary confinement. Um, you know, being interrogated routinely uh, being beaten with sticks. Um, there are now lots of reports of women undergoing forced sterilization. Um, so really all kinds of abuses, really anything you can think of are happening in these camps. And, and like, once again, I would stress that none of these people have been accused of anything. So it's, it's an incredibly kind of Kafka-esque system in that way, because you don't really know necessarily what your transgression even is when you arrive to these places.
1: And this is all just part of China's attempt to essentially assimilate force uh, forced assimilate the Muslim community inside the country?
2: I think assimilate them and then also, of course, control and confine them.
1: And what by control? What do you mean control?
2: Well, if you are afraid of being sent to a camp for writing a tweet or using VPN, then um if that if the cost for doing those behaviors is that high, um, if you're afraid that having a prayer rug in your house is going to get you sent to a camp then you're probably not going to pray or tweet right so like i think if control is mm-hmm. one of the goals it probably has been accomplished
1: wow and then you know china obviously a massive country it doesn't seem like there's much that the world has done to it in terms of like consequences is there something that the international community can do about it and also do you think that this has gotten enough attention because it does seem like you know, if you're talking about somewhere near a million people going through some, something like this, um, you know, we in our world, we like to talk about making sure that things like this don't happen again. So um, huh. do you think there's enough attention to it? And can anything be done?
2: Um. Yeah, I mean, the can anything be done question is hard because it's almost like like we're coming at this as two Americans and we're thinking about um a problem that's happening on the other side of the world and whether the like the implicit thing is like can the international community do something about this when actually the most straightforward answer is that the Chinese government could just stop doing this, right? Like it like but that's not really something that is even sort of within the realm of possibility as a consequence of of like pressure that would come from the media or something like that. Um, But yeah, I mean I think actually it, it is true that it hasn't probably gotten even now, um, that it's a big international story. I still think it hasn't gotten all the attention that it's due simply because, um, we don't know a lot, like we don't know a lot about the kind of whole scope of what's happening there, um, from a lot of different perspectives, ranging from, um, you know, forced labor to, uh, forced birth control and other practices like that. Um, you know, all kinds of things, um, But having said that, I think I've been covering this issue for a long time. And um, I do think that there's been a kind of steady uptick in the kind of understanding of this issue. Like, I mean, look at what happened this week with Mulan. Like, um, you know, these are like international headlines everywhere of people saying boycott Mulan because parts of it were filmed in Xinjiang, um, you know, among other things. Um, And I can't really imagine that having happened even a year ago. I just don't think that it would have registered the way that it registers now. Um, So that's something. And then I would also say the Trump administration has actually taken a few concrete steps. um, And it seems like it fits into their agenda for China. And um, they like, they talk about it frequently, uh, more than other international governments by a lot. Um, They have put sanctions on um, officials with direct responsibility for the abuses, including Chen Chuanguo, who's the top a communist party official in the region um they're putting curbs on imports uh from the region um so there have definitely been um some steps that have been taken already um in terms of what those steps are going to accomplish i think it's probably too early to say but i'm interested to see if it will prove to be any kind of deterrent either for for china or for for companies with ties there or other actors
1: right and and i guess one of the obvious questions that I haven't asked yet is I mean, why? So so we know why China's doing this, right? They want to force mm. assimilate the population. But once again, why would they do it? Like the cost benefit here seems to be, you know, I, I don't know, a little bit ridiculous where like you're talking about a population I think we're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, about 25 million Muslims in this region.
2: No, sorry, Chi- uh, half that.
1: Okay, so half, so 12 and a half, right? Yeah. And China's a country of one and a half billion people. I mean, what's the, I don't understand what they're looking to do if they, you know, to try to to take such a small population and essentially, you know, erase their history, erase their culture. What's the possible benefit that they get out of this?
2: Um, yeah, it's a tough question, um... I can't speak for them, obviously, but I'm a person who, having covered China for as long as I did, like I kind of, I think you shouldn't underestimate their like the government's obsession with uh, what they would call social stability. Um, you know, I think there is a, an element here of the government just genuinely believing that. Islam is the thing that is the problem that, um, this culture, like the, the cultures that exist there are the problem. Like when you listen to what they talk about, they talk about ideology, um, in the terms that people would talk about, like a virus, like they'll call it like a virus, um, this idea of extremism being a virus. So like if you think about extremism and then you broaden the definition of extremism to include like anything like like fasting on ramadan or praying or having religious texts um then like it becomes like if you think that all of those things are extreme actions and the government clearly does because they have banned things like wearing the hijab like wearing a beard for men um very very like normal actions that um believers like uh, followers of islam would would take up Um, you know, if, if that's what you believe, then, um, it makes sense to say, okay, this whole group of people needs to be brainwashed, um, in these like re-education centers or what have you. I think that's sort of where they're coming from. Um, it takes of course, a certain kind of racism to, um, to really believe that about, um, a group of people that's that big, but, um, you know, it's happened many, many times in history. Um, so it's not surprising to me that it would happen again.
1: Yeah, and here it is happening again. And then let's yeah. talk a little bit about um, the people, right? So you one of the things that I found remarkable about your story is you did speak with a lot of people who have been through the system. So what have they told you and how risky is it for them to speak with a reporter?
2: Yeah. Um. So when I first started reporting on this, it was really hard to get anyone to talk because even if you've left China, Excuse me. Even if you've left China, you probably still have a family there. And the government does go after people's families. Um, And um, this is a known thing. Like they even do it in um, state media reports. They'll like for for ex-detainees who have spoken out. They'll go and interview their family and the family will be like, no, this this never happened. And it's all a lie and stuff like that. Um, Wow. Or like they'll ask um, they'll they'll say, like, stop talking or we'll put we'll detain your family member. Right. I did, a, I did a piece about a, a man who was in Scandinavia and, um, he, he was worried about his teenage son, uh, being sent to a camp, um, for, for this exact reason. Um, so what happened after that is that, um, people figured out that like, they kind of just gave up. Like they, they were hoping for lenience by staying quiet. And then they found out that they weren't going to get any lenience in many cases. So, um, people started speaking up a lot more. And um, that's why, like, if you look at Xinjiang news coverage now, you'll see a lot of name sources um, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have done before. Um, So remind me, what was your other question?
1: Uh, Just like, what have they told you? But I'd also ask um, for you, like, what what calculation do you make as a reporter? Yeah. Uh, Because you realize that by printing these people's names, there's a chance there might be retribution.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um that's something I think about a lot. Um per- like I think I thought about it more a couple years ago than I do now just because I think the consequences of putting your name out there are a lot better known now um in these communities. Um, I always try to ask people about their family situation like early in the interview, and I really do make clear to people, if you have second thoughts, if you get cold feet, if you get some new piece of information about um, you know, your family that makes you think that if we publish this, they could be detained, then like, please tell me and we won't do the story. And that's happened to me, uh, twice that I can think of where Mm -hmm. we had a long conversation and the the person got cold feet and backed out. And as a reporter, I always be like, my door's open. Even if you just want to talk, like I'm here for that. But, um, you know, I would never want to put pressure on someone to publish. And like there, I think there have been other cases where I feel like people have been quoted in the press and I I don't know if consent was given and it really bothers me to see that, especially on video and stuff like that, because, um, you know, people are taking huge risks. Um, the other side of that is that you don't, you don't want to in the name of protecting a source actually stifle someone who really does want to speak out. You want to give them the opportunity to do that if they have a story that's true and that's, that's, that's newsworthy. And there are a lot of people who are very direct who will say like, um, you know, I know this could have consequences for my family, but I feel like if I don't speak out, I'm betraying myself, I'm betraying my conscience and all that sort of stuff. Um, So I try to take that seriously when that does come out. And then the other thing is like often like, you know, we'll use first name. Sometimes we won't put the person's hometown. We'll just put their kind of adopted hometown, stuff like that. Um, So I think there, there are sort of some ways around it.
1: Right. Okay. Let's just end this segment, um, with a question that you probably couldn't address in a story, but maybe you can do it on a podcast. I'd like to just speculate a little bit. Um, where do you, and and I know like you can't really say for certain where this goes, but if you had to guess, what do you think happens from here in Xinjiang?
2: Oh man, I really hate this question. Um, I don't know. I mean, the the thing is, like, you're asking where do we go from here? But I don't even know if we have documented what here is. There's so much that we don't know about the crisis still. Like, we don't know um, about how prevalent forced labor is because of the opacity of supply chains there. We don't know what's happening to children of people who are detained in full. Like there's, there's evidence that children are being sent to state run orphanages, but we don't know long-term what happens to these children. Um, we don't know like for what purpose ultimately these super high security facilities that we documented, um, were built, um, And we don't know, um, you know, about the possibility of state control of violence, of rape on a wide scale and other crimes specifically uh, targeting women. Um, You know, there's just a lot to find out. Um, And I think knowing more about that stuff will tell us more about what's to come. Uh, I don't want to sound like I'm dodging the question. No, this is great. Yeah. 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 Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, it's really hard to say. Like, the thing is, um, I feel like there's been... Uh, some international pressure, but not not like a lot. Um, but I think these campaigns take a lot of time, and I don't think we'll know if the international pressure that is there has worked for um, probably for for a couple of years at least.
1: Right, and, and you know, you I guess one of the interesting things about your answer is you asked you answered with a lot of questions that we need to solve, and we know the Chinese government isn't just going to go ahead and, and share it with us and that the type of reporting that you do and the type of reporting, reporting that people who are on this story are doing is what's helping us uh, learn a little bit more about this. So um, when we come back after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about your uh, reporting adventures in China and what eventually got you kicked out of the country. So uh, all right, everyone, um, we'll be right back after this.
0: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
1: And we're back here with BuzzFeed News correspondent, Mega Rajagopalan. We're talking a little bit about what it's like uh, to report the news in China. And now I really want to uh, expand upon that because, Mega, you had a very interesting uh, experience that might have been uh, somewhat rare or, you know, something that didn't happen too often. Back when it happened to you which is that you got kicked out of beijing um, but now it seems to be happening much more frequently with international news organizations so i'd love to hear from your perspective um what wh- what happened when you got kicked out of the country
2: yeah i mean you're right it's getting to be a pretty big club um yeah when when i lost my visa it wasn't um it wasn't that common i think there was sort of And an when did app- it happen this was in 2018 um in march
1: mm mm-hmm. mhm
2: Yeah. So essentially what had happened was, um, I wrote, I had written my first piece, big piece on, um, the camps in Xinjiang, which, and the kind of surveillance environment there in the fall of 2017. And I had gone to the region. I was the first journalist to actually find one of these internment camps because I had, I had GPS coordinates or I had directions, I think, from a, from a source, um, who just knew where it was. And, um, And so I went, I took some pictures, and we did a piece on it. And because it's BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed doesn't have a paywall, of course, um, a lot of people read it. And um, I kind of, I didn't really have much of an inkling that anything was wrong. But I did get a call for a meeting with state security officials um, in the kind of, I think, fall or early winter of 2017. And that was kind of unusual. Um, It wasn't what did you talk- think
1: when you got called into that meeting? Was you, were you like, "This is the end of my they, time here"? Or?
2: No, I wasn't like that. I mean, I I didn't know who they were. They said they were government officials by phone and asked if I would uh, with the Beijing City government. And they asked if I would meet, and then once I showed up, they showed me their badges and they were state security officials. Um, they identified them as such themselves as such. Um, so we had the meeting. Um, it was cordial and um, yeah. And what did then, they say to you? They wanted to know about. Uh, who I was talking to about my work and stuff like that um, uh, and you know they wanted me to sort of cooperate with them and in giving information and of course I was had no intention of doing that um, but I just didn't give them much of any answers and then um, I I like I think I wrote a little memo about the experience um, just so I would have it for my records in case anyone ever asked but um, yeah th- and that was it and then I didn't hear from them after that so I had no reason to think anything was had gone wrong and then um um, at the kind of end of the year, um, I had my annual meeting with um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is the kind of main government ministry that journalists, inter- foreign journalists interact with um, in China. And it was a routine meeting. Um, and I got to this meeting, which was in a Korean coffee shop uh, across the street from the foreign ministry, best known for waffles. And we were sitting there drinking our lattes and they were like, um, listen we don't like your reporting on human rights and i was like why and they're like well we think it's wrong and i said well if there's if there are any errors in the story like we can discuss and then maybe you know if it's if it's like we can talk about running a correction like if there's something really wrong with the story and he said um well there are no errors that we could point to specifically per se but it was wrong nonetheless (laughs) i was like all right
1: (laughs) interesting Yeah, Yeah,
2: great. Um, So then we talked, it was, again, it was like, it was a a polite conversation, touched on a range of subjects after they were done um, criticizing my work. Um, And then at the end of the conversation, I asked, like, you know, my visa's coming up due. um, Do you expect any problems with it? They were like, no, 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 just just submit it and um, it'll be fine. So I was like, okay. Um, But they asked me to wait until after the Chinese New Year holiday, which is a week-long holiday in China and the country kind of shuts down. It's a bit bit like Christmas in terms of its significance, like, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I waited until the first working day after the holiday. Um, I submitted all my paperwork, um, got a red receipt, like an email back, like got, like got it from, uh, the Chinese consulate in New York. And then, um, you know, like, um, I, I just waited. I, I had to leave the country for a different story. And then, so then I ended up abroad because I, I just had planned to just be away and then might be, so it would be renewed. And then I thought I would go back. Um, but, Unfortunately, um, it wasn't renewed. I checked, I called to check in on it, and they had. They said that they had lost the application, which like couldn't have been true because I got that red receipt. So I, at that point, I knew something had really gone wrong. And then, um, yeah. And then finally, I think around June of 2018, I received an email from the Chinese consulate in New York saying, "We do not approve this visa." So um, how
1: did you how did you feel when you saw that you weren't going to get your visa approved? you had invested a lot at that point into reporting on China.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was devastating. Like, um, it was absolutely devastating. I had built my career there for the most part. Um, It's the country that I spent the most time in um, since graduating college. And, um, you know, I spoke Chinese. My whole life was in China. I had never really lived anywhere else um, much as an adult. Um, You know, all my friends were there. I had a lease on an apartment there. All of my furniture was there. And, you know, I was... um, overseas and stuff like that. Um, and I just thought like, you know, this could be like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my career now. Um, so, and also, you know, I just didn't want to leave in that way. Like I'm not an anti-China person, like at all. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's why I wouldn't have spent so many years in China if I hated China. Like, I mean, there are so many things that I love very, very, very much about that country. And, um, the, the idea that I wouldn't be able to go back, uh, because of this decision that felt very arbitrary was, was quite painful.
1: Can you go back as a tourist or are you just like fully banned?
2: Um, I don't know. I've never asked. I always assumed that I could go back as a tourist. Um, Uh however, um, because of some recent developments, um, you know, both, uh, the jailing of, um, the two Canadians that, um, have been held there in the, the Huawei case, um, in retaliation for the Huawei case, um, as well as all of the recent measures that have been taken targeting, um, uh, American TikTok. journalists and Australian journalists, like it's a little mm. bit scary to think about going back, um, especially now that I've published a, a new batch of work that's quite critical of the government.
1: Right. OK. And then so after you got kicked out, now let's get to the part that everyone seems to be getting kicked out. I mean, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Wall Street yeah. Post, Voice of America, Time magazine have all had either been fully kicked out or have had restrictions put on them why is China kicking out all these journalists? It's sort of interesting to me that they even allowed them in in the first place if they were so sensitive about this coverage. So what do you think is behind this recent wave of expulsions?
2: Yeah. Okay. So two things. So Why do they let them in in the first place? A lot of people ask this. So I want to address this. So China is an authoritarian country, but it is not a tin pot dictatorship. This is a big economy uh, with who that really, really cares about its international image. And um, that including the whole world, not just the US and Europe. Right. Um, And part of being a big economy is that you have like investors have to trust that you have like a functioning system based on rule of law, um, you know, in terms of the stock market, in terms of property, like, um, Like in terms of monetary policy, like all of these things. And you can't really get there if you don't have international media in your country, right? And if you think Uh that sounds crazy now, because now we're talking about human rights and and diplomacy and stuff like that. But it wasn't long ago that the only story really that was making big headlines about China was the economic story. Like when they were at 10% GDP growth a year, that was the story about China. It was about uh, poverty alleviation and economic development and joining the WTO and stuff like that. So it was during. that era that a lot of journalists started to come to China and China started to become a big presence, um, in the international media. Um, so I guess like what's happened since then. So you ask like, you know, like why are they throwing people out now? Um, I think, you know, part of it is the, the very obvious, they don't like critical coverage. Like I think that's part of it. But of course, as you pointed out, there was critical coverage before and all of these people kept their visas. So I think what's happening now is that, Um, a lot of these journalists have essentially become pawns in this kind of grand strategy thing that's happening between the U S and China, where both parties are continually sort of upping the ante. Um, I used to cover diplomacy in China. And one thing that, uh, that's a really core part of Chinese diplomatic culture is just reciprocity. Like it's like a very, very, uh, like tit for tat kind of driven diplomatic culture. So like, for instance, uh, I used to cover state visits a lot. And um, like, whenever any US official would visit China, um, you know, there would be a discussion uh, about how many journalists are allowed in the room from each country mm. right and yeah. um, as it was told to me by American officials like the Americans would always say well we want like six journalists or like however many it was that they wanted and the Chinese would be like no we want four just like out of principle they would want less and then these discussions would go on like all night long like it was it was so insane I can <laughs> yeah there, but like yeah. Th- this is like this is what it is so it's like for them it's like you force our state media outlets to register as foreign agents in DC well like we're going to retaliate against your media outlets and it right. just, it matter that US media isn't generally isn't state controlled, right? They see it as uh, more or less analogous.
1: Interesting. So is it the recent, um, the recent forcing of these of these publications from China to register that's caused some of this stuff?
2: I think it was the trigger. But um, I kind yeah. of felt like this was always going to happen at some point. But yeah, I think if you're oh, looking for like a, why was like that? A pres- yeah, well, because of the direction things were going. I mean, I think mm-hmm. China, um, China has sort of become less important to multinational companies than it previously was because they their priorities building up their national champ champions and in, in many industries um so there was like that kind of like that was one of the core lobbies for like greater engagement with china and that lobby kind of lost a lot of power, a lot of interest in doing that um, after the Chinese market became less hospitable to them. Um, So I think it was always moving in a direction where there was going to be like a little bit less engagement, a little bit more hostility. But then I think that that kind of sped up a lot in the past um, couple of years with the Trump administration. So um, I mean, Mm -hmm. having said that, I don't want to imply that it's the Trump administration's fault that journalists are being thrown out of China. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm what I'm saying is like, um they did it in response to an immediate event but i think they like the notion building. that yeah like the notion that throwing out journalists is a way to punish them for uh for negative coverage has been a long, around for a long long time like far predating trump
1: yeah and i guess one obvious question to end this segment is um how much has the coronavirus situation uh where like the us has blamed china china has blamed the us for originating the virus um how much has that played into these to the tensions and then also the ability of reporters to do their job inside China.
2: Um, I don't know if I can answer that to be honest, because I haven't, I just haven't covered it. Like, uh, yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Well, that's, it's a good, first of all, like I like when people, you know, (laughs) when people say that they don't know the answer to something as opposed to, um, you know, try to riff on it. So Mm. I appreciate that. Um, two really nuanced segments, hopefully one more coming up. Uh, When we're we're back, we will talk about uh, the movement in the U.S. to ban TikTok and whether there are two different internets emerging, um, one that is following the U.S. vision, one that's following the China vision. We'll be back right after this.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of.
1: And we're back here for one more quick segment with BuzzFeed News correspondent, Mega Um, We're going to talk a little bit about the TikTok situation. The U.S. has been flirting with the idea of banning TikTok. Um, obviously, many U.S. tech companies are banned in China. Facebook isn't in there. Google isn't in there. Although Google had been in there and decided to withdraw. Mega, what do you make of the whole fight uh, between these two countries over control of the internet? And how do you think TikTok plays into that?
2: Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, I never thought that we would get to a point where there was serious discussion in the U.S. about banning uh, a particular app um, because it was made in a country that was hostile to the U.S. Um, But I guess we are there now. Um, It's interesting, I guess, to me, it's shown that... um, this vision of the internet that China and countries like China have espoused for a long time, that was, uh, mocked, um, I think by, by the U S and, um, other countries that, um, had loose restrictions on the internet, um, is now being adopted by the U S kind of like in, and what in, is a, that in vision? a manner of speaking. Yeah. So like, for instance, like we used to talk about, um, the balkanization of the internet. Right. Like meaning that we would move from this this kind of state of history that we're sort of currently in uh, where there's sort of free movement of information on the Internet between countries to a version of the Internet that is like much more kind of regulated by country or censored by country. What have you. Um, so China was obviously the, the pioneer of this with the um, the Golden Shield Project, also known as the Great Firewall. Um where they have, as you said, like cut out lots of internet services that other countries um, uh, use. And um, like Bill Clinton referred to that model of censoring the internet as nailing Jell-O to a wall, like meaning you can't nail Jell-O to the wall, right? It'll slide off. But then now we're in this situation where the U.S. is actually now saying, uh, we're going to do exactly what you did, and we're going to cut out one of your apps like from, from our market. Um so I think that's really interesting because that's sort of a vision of what the internet should be like like and kind of at a high level like the US's reasons for banning TikTok are very different from China's reasons for banning Facebook like to my understanding the US is not banning TikTok because of a free expression issue like they're not trying to uh cut off speech like you know they're thinking about like things like basically like privacy, national security concerns. So it's it's a little bit different, but the outcome is more or less, um, you know, kind of comparable.
1: The most convincing argument I've heard for banning TikTok is that this is a app that shows you content based off of an algorithm, not really based off of a follow model. And it's mm. possible that, you know, because there are many tech companies in China that have serious connections to the Chinese communist party. And in fact, the ByteDance CEO has already apologized to the party for uh, not censoring enough um, that it's possible that maybe one day TikTok will rearrange its algorithm to show people content, uh, you know, based off of the Chinese government's wants um, and sort of do some culture control yeah. that way without anyone ever knowing. Um, is that a serious concern from your perspective?
2: I've heard people say that. Yeah, I have heard people say that. Um, It's interesting. Like, I don't think it's outlandish. Um, However, it is a hypothetical, I think. Um, And it also, I think the problem with this argument is that to make this argument, um, you have to accept that manipulating algorithms is, uh, is like fundamentally a problem. And, um, you know, and you have to accept that even if it's not the Chinese government doing it, if it's some other bad actor that's doing it. Um, And, it's really hard then to say actually tiktok is the only one that's vulnerable to this right because that's what you're really saying you're saying tiktok is more vulnerable to this than other social platforms um and i'm not completely sold on that argument because um i mean we all know that facebook had it's very famously had its algorithm manipulated right so they're now kind of conscious of that and taking some steps um to to try to ensure that doesn't happen again but you know i mean we both know that it's been touch and go at Facebook, Twitter, and um, other social platforms in the U.S., right? Um, so the question to me is, like, you don't, when you're talking about tech governance, you don't necessarily want to apply rules based on the place that the company is based, right? Like, I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to approach tech governance. Um, it seems to me that it would make more sense to have one set of standards and then apply it to all the all these companies, right? So. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about algorithms, what we really want is transparency, right? Because this is like, we're talking about social media companies as a vehicle for speech and these algorithms that are essentially regulating speech, right? In a public square. And... Um, we don't, the, the issue, like the larger issue here is that nobody sees these algorithms because the companies consider them proprietary and there's no kind of like independent governing structure that determines like which algorithms are just and which are free from influence and all of that sort of stuff. So like all of the tech companies have this problem, right? Um, so I don't really see necessarily a strong reason to apply it to TikTok in a way that is different from all of the other tech companies.
1: Well, I mean, the reason would be that that it's, that TikTok seems more easily influenced by a state power than the others. I mean, that would be the straightforward argument to do it to TikTok.
2: Do you yeah, buy that? I mean, well, I th- I'm more convinced by the argument that it's a platform that shows you stuff, like kind of not based on follows, but just based on like the algorithm. Right. Um, I think that's more convincing. But when you're talking about, you know, is it easy for like nation state actors to influence the platform. Like that was already done at Facebook. Right. That's so, true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I don't like, how can you really make that argument? Right. Like, well, it's, we, it's, we it's found,
1: hard. yeah, but well, we found out about Facebook and I guess like people would say we might never find out about TikTok because like you mentioned, it's not a follow-based model. So it could just right. be some subtle shifting of the algorithm to point to one thing, but yeah.
2: Yeah. Who
1: knows? Okay. So let's just, let's just wrap up with another question that I'm sure you will hate. Um, you're in, let's say you're in President Trump's position. Oh, no. Um, What would you do to TikTok? I'm a
2: journalist. Why would you ask me this?
1: (laughs) Because, I don't know, I have a podcast and I feel like it's fun to to ask questions like this that people hate, so. (laughs)
2: What would I do with TikTok? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, I'm an old-fashioned girl who believes in the free and open internet. Mm I don't think, I think it's a bad path to, to, like I mean I'm not saying any regulation of TikTok is out I'm not saying that at all but I think blocking an app based on um a decision that is made because like about its home country is is opening the door even if it's legitimate it's still opening the door to other actions that are like this that are that will be taken on by future administrations that we cannot predict right it will set a precedent for internet censorship in the US um, in a way that has never been done before. And I don't necessarily know if that's a good thing. Like, I don't know if we want to set a precedent where everybody in the world is living in their own little app ecosystem and, um, not communicating with each other. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily a better world. Um, having said that, I think that, um, you know, if the Trump administration were going to say, or, or if anybody was going to say like, um, Let's not ban TikTok for the entire US populace, but like, you know, if you're in the military, if you're in a government role, don't mm-hmm. use it, you know, or certain kinds of people don't use it, um, you know, in certain occupations and stuff. That makes sense to me from this national security perspective. Um, it's also like, you know, this, this argument that, um, the Chinese government could use it to create an, an influence operation. I, I kind of feel like, yeah I mean yes it's definitely possible um to do but it's also like I said it's kind of a hypothetical right um so yeah. it's it feels like we're punishing the app for something that hasn't even happened and mm. I don't understand why that should be when when the uh, the um sorry the companies that were manipulated by uh by Russia you know have have said that they were been manipulated by Russia by Iran by other state actors like haven't really faced any consequences in the US for that right other than kind of a PR nightmare.
1: That's right. Yeah. Well, um, look, mega super interesting stuff. I'm going to keep reading your work. Uh, I want to thank you for doing it. It's helped me become way more informed and the world, become more informed about it. And it's good to see it really reaching a broad audience before we go. Just let people know where they can find your stuff.
2: Um, you can find me on buzzfeed.com or um, buzzfeednews.com. Sorry. Um, or on Twitter at M E G H A R A.
1: Great. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been another great week here on the Big Technology Podcast. We hope to see you next week for another great discussion.
2: Thank you so much.